Hello, and welcome to the Podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Bloody Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 144th episode of the Dottacast titled, It Was All a Dream, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Daenerys 5, in which Danny and her followers leave Karth, accompanied by a nice old man who saved her life just randomly, who is totally not Barristan Summy. I believe he says his name is Arston, which means not Barristan in, in Karthian, I think, right? I think it's pronounced Belwis, actually. Strong oh. Belwis is how he articulates his name. <laughs> They're the same guy. They're the same guy. That's the big twist and reveal. Oh, yes. Barristan I... was Belwis all along. The Song of Ice and Fire has been sung and solved. Thank you, Emmett. You, we are now... You heard it here first. <laughs> you, you won't hear it anywhere else. That's for fucking sure. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our not-a-small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems, and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas, and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archspacer June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gem that was promised, the high bearded priest, Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, Ward of East Bishops of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Baitfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies, and General Thems, Haldiver, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first for name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Avorked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letterkin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall. Ola, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils where every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Bragar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Gary the Boneway. Lord Charles Terrell of Highgarden. Lord Paramount the Bander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Terrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bulb, Blackberry the Bulb, Champion of the Field, Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and the Patron of Free, Wheeling Bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, and Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master and deliverer, the valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen, Anna. 
Thank you to all of our small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three decade novels, histories, interviews, the Winsweeters sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, our newest High Lady, who we'll shout out properly at the end of this episode. And they ask, throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, there's no mention of hard alcohol that I'm aware of. It's all beer and wine, and that's great. But if there were liquors, uh, which uh, which ones do you think some of the main characters, like John or Danny and Tyrion, would be partial to? Do you think the folks in the North would enjoy some dark whiskeys or a moonshine? Would the seafaring Iron Islanders prefer rum in true pirate fashion? Would Cersei drink gin or vodka, something pure but strong? Would Sam, Brienne, and Stannis definitely not enjoy the hard alcohols and prefer to abstain? <laughs> Uh, fun other discussions along this topic could be where would different alcohols come in from A Song of Ice and Fire and or what, each, what would each region prefer and what would other maiden side characters prefer to drink. Lastly, how would characters' relationships to alcohol be different at all if there were these other options? For example, do you have any thoughts on how Sansa's relationship with alcohol slash other characters might be different with different drink options? And what a terrific question. What do you think about that, Jeff? Uh, if, if, you, it, you know, if you introduced a hard liquor into the world of A Song of Ice and Fire... Where would it land and how would it do so? Well, well, first off, so this question came from our Not a Slack, which is available for all of our high lords and ladies and, and Not a Small Council patrons. And Wisdom Benjikot, who, of course, we'll shout out at the end of this episode, replied that actually there is another form of alcohol besides beer and wine, and that is rum that is drunk by the, uh, the Summer Islanders aboard the, uh, the Simmon Wind from a firm of for Crows. So I think we could say pretty conclusively that rum comes from the Summer Islands and um I'm not a rum drinker, so so I, I don't I don't really like rum a whole lot. I actually don't like a lot of hard liquor, to, to be completely honest. So in my estimation, the characters that I like all drink IPAs, and the ones that I don't like drink <laughs> hard alcohol. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I could see heroes and villains. That's right, heroes and villains. There's just one way to distinguish them, and that's whether they drink the IPA, the mightiest of all beers, or if they don't drink IPA, which are the not mightiest of uh, whatever. So uh, this is this is the interesting question. I think like. When you look like historically, like where is the, where is alcohol developed primarily? Like you can see like your your whiskeys and your your harder stuff being developed in the northern part of the United Kingdom and and in Ireland especially as well. And you need that peat and you need that uh, <laughs> and you need different sort like you need the kind of cold weather. So I think like the north would have probably more of like your whiskeys and your scotches and, and things like that. Um, because because we were earlier doing craster as kind of this dude from like uh, the Appalachians sort of thing, uh, you sure. could say you, you could say that maybe bourbon comes from uh, beyond the wall. Let's 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 say that so to speak. So all these okay. these wildlings develop warming bourbon. up the bones up there. I could see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you could see that as well. Um, and and otherwise, I think like wine and beer would be the primary thing that that thing that people would drink. Um, I, I'd be curious, you know, something we don't actually see a whole lot of is like the the seps and where if there's any alcohol that's that's developed there. You know, historically we had a lot of beer and hard and hard liquor that was developed in in monasteries in, in the Middle Ages primarily. So a lot of these really fancy beers that can, that people drink nowadays, they could buy from the liquor store. They're developed in monasteries, and that kind of stuff started back. Uh, after after the after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire and where a lot of monasteries they ended up taking a lot of that stuff and making some interesting brews and and, and things and so to speak. So yeah, uh, who who would be drinking what? I mean, I, I could see Robert 
doing a lot of fireball. I mean, uh, come on, let's let's be real. Like Robert's Robert a would line guy. up the shots, no question about it. You know, Stannis would continue to drink water with a squeeze of lemon and a dash of salt in it. I mean, he's not going to be drinking anything. A dash of salt if he's feeling crazy. Yeah, right. exactly. I think he's Ned and extra exciting. Ned and Catelyn are like the type of people that would like drink like a glass of wine with with dinner, right? But never, but they would they would never go overboard or anything like that because that's that's the type of people they are, you know. Maybe right Catelyn there. will have a dry martini if she's sh- you know sure Ned's not looking. If Ned's away at Deepwood Mott. To, to talk about Harvest with the Clevers for three. Catalan will have a martini. And just no one's allowed to mention it to Ned. If she wants to get in the mood, that's right. She's going to get that martini going. You remember from uh, from her second chapter? From, <laughs> never mind. Uh, from A Game of Thrones. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yes. that's It all started after she had that one, her, her monthly martini. So, um, you know, what, what can you that's say? That's what you get. <laughs> All right, so I, I've rambled enough, sir. What do you think about this question? There's there's all sorts of, of subordinate questions here, so that's uh, that that are great. That definitely speak to, uh, you know, uh, something that's interesting, which I think like that alcohol and your consumption thereof can can be part of your your personality, though it should not be show, though it should not define your personality necessarily. I would be very interested to see a uh, 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 moonshine develop uh, all across a song of ice and fire. Everyone just independently develops that. I'm sure a uh, torment could come up with something fearsome that he would pull out of his back pocket that would send John reeling. I always like the description of the fearsomely strong cider down in Old Town. True. Which makes sense. You know, it's not a monastery exactly, but of course, you know, the uh, librarians and scholars have always done a good job of coming up with booze as well because you've got to come up with something to help you while away the long hours of fruitless research and crumbling tomes. So they seem to drink a bunch, as Eamon recalls especially. So I'm sure they would take to any other kind of hard liquor you could send their way down the honey wine. <laughs> Those librarians like to drink. The maesters mm-hmm. do love it. Yeah, I do. I am tickled by the idea of Cersei drinking both gin and vodka, depending on what's available. <laughs> um, Euron's kind of already got his psychedelic drink. I agree. Rome would be popular among the Iron Islanders. There's probably be some hardcore tequila fans among them too. They'd be dangerous. Um, I guess the question is what Oberyn wouldn't drink. Really, right? He, <laughs> I'm sure he would sample everything, everything in his path. I mean, if this if these kind of liquors run the market, honestly, we talked about Robert knocking back Fireball. Robert would be dead of liver poisoning before he ever got near the Iron Throne. So would Brandon Stark. Robert's Rebellion wouldn't be it would be butterflied away by like cirrhosis at the age of sixteen for both of those dudes. They just would not stop. They they would definitely not not stop as well so uh, the final question she asks is or they ask is how would the character's relationship to alcohol be different if at all if there were these other options for example do you think how many thoughts on how sansa's relationship with alcohol other characters might be different with different drink options you know i are you of the opinion that like there's like kind of like different feelings that come with different alcohols like there's like the beer drunk and the wine drunk and the and the liquor drunk have, are, are you of that opinion oh sure or? i mean i think it also you know we tend to not as a hard and fast rule, but we often associate those with different social settings. So I think that just goes hand in hand. You create the experience around the booze and then you feel a certain way. But yeah, I mean, it's a chicken or the egg kind of thing. It's like, are you attracted to this kind of liquor because that's your personality? Or is does that become your personality because you're drinking <laughs> that kind of liquor? As you said, you know, once it, once it starts to control you, it can be hard to separate the two, unfortunately. That's why it's fun, but dangerous. Right. As the best things in life are, fun and dangerous, like this podcast, very fun and very dangerous. Exactly. Very risky. Very risky to be listening to us. Spoilers for anything and everything, after all. I mean, I announce it every single week, but but no. And yet, no one seems to heed you. Nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Nobody gives a shit what I say. That's life. 
my entire life summed up in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> How sad. How sad. <laughs> so thank you, Sir Lady Jordan, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here in the Not A Cast podcast. You are welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F where you can get show notes for every episode, 36 bonus of Song of Ice and Fire episodes, 18 Fever Dream episodes, free merch, and for our two highest tiers, access to the Not A Slack, shoutouts every week, and weekly minisodes. Absolutely. And just as a, as a reminder, because I haven't reminded anyone recently, our next Patreon stretch goal is looming on the horizon. Now, I don't know if y'all have been keeping track of this, but there's been a lot of talk recently about the adaptation of the Dunkin' Egg series to the small screen by HBO. And once you know it, but our next stretch goal is to hit $7,000 a month. And when we get there, we'll do a full multi-part analysis of the first Dunkin' Egg novella, The Hedge Knight, which I think is my second of favorite because I like The Mystery Knight. I think The Mystery Knight's just an awesome story. I think so, I'm with you on that for sure. Yep. Yeah. Blood Raven shows up. I mean, like, you can't beat mm-hmm. Blood Raven, like, pulling up there. But The Hedge Knight is just fantastic, awesome stuff as well. George's take on, on the fantasy genre, um, which is just just fabulous. So we, we'd love to do that. And if you would like to hear, listen to us and support us, come on over and join us. Join your friends and my friends, if I have friends, at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOAF. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Daenerys, she had taken a little field trip to a little place called the House of the Undying, where she had had visions of wonder and terror and almost been eaten by the Undying. Let's find out how George follows up his utter triumph in writing a Clash Kings Daenerys 4 with a chapter that I regret to inform everyone here is still set in fucking Karth with this synopsis of a Clash of Kings Daenerys 5. She was breaking her fast on a bowl of cold shrimp and persimmon soup when Eerie brought her a Carthine gown, an airy confection of ivory samite patterned with seed pearls. Take it away, Danny said. The docks are no place for a lady's finery. Well, with that thrilling opening, we open to Danny's final chapter set in Carth. Thank God. Danny decides that if everyone thinks she's a savage, she's going to look the part by putting on some Dothraki garb. Thankfully, in this loose-fitting Dothraki garb, her boobs boob boobily, unlike her old Carthine garb, and she has a Dothraki braid that Jiqui braided for her along with bells. She thinks she's she doesn't think she's earned the braid, though, or the bells, as she's won no battle. But Jiqui tells her that Danny defeated the Meiji and the Warlocks and sent their souls to hell, which is fucking metal. That was Drogon's victory, not mine, Danny wanted to say. But she held her tongue. The Dothraki would esteem her all the more for a few bells in her hair. She chimed as she mounted her silver mare and again with every stride. But neither Ser Jorah nor her blood riders made mention of it. To guard her people and her dragons in her absence, she chose Rakaro, Jogo, and Ago would ride with her to the waterfront. Danny and her company move into the poorer part of Karth, of Karth, but even here, Danny knows that the people know her, and they do not like her whatsoever. Jorah wanted her to be inside her palanquin hiding, but she's tired of resting. She wants to ride as if she's moving somewhere. It's Meta. She's here on the waterfront for a reason, though. A plot reason, that is. She's running again, much as she did her entire life. Zaro had warned her that Pyatpri and the rest of the warlocks were out to get her. Danny thinks this is silly because Zaro had told her that the warlocks were powerless before she went to the House of the Undying. Zaro looked troubled. And so it was, but, but now I, I am less certain. It is said that the glass candles are burning in the House of Yurathon Nightwalker that have not burned in a hundred years. Ghostgrass grows in the Garden of Garthene. Phantom tortoises have been seen carrying messages between the windowless houses of one on Warlock's Way, and all the rats in the city are chewing off their tails. The wife of Mathos Malarwin, who had once mocked a Warlock's drab, moth-eaten robe, has gone mad and will wear no clothes at all. Even fresh-washed silks make her feel as though a thousand insects were crawling on her skin, and blind Sebastian, the eater of eyes, can see again, or so his slaves do swear. A man must wonder. He 
He sighed. These are strange times in Carth, and strange times are bad for trade. It, it grieves me to say so, yet it, it might be best if you left Carth entirely. And sooner rather than later? Zaro stroked her fingers reassuringly. You need not go alone, though. You have seen dark visions in the Palace of Dust, but Zaro has dreamed brighter dreams. I see you happily bed with our child at your breast. Sail with me around the Jade Sea, and we can yet make it so. It is not too late. Give me a son, my sweet song of joy. But Danny is not interested in marrying Zaro, and that causes Zaro to go cold. He tells her to leave Karth, and he doesn't care where she goes, just as long as she's far away from the city. Danny thinks that's not the worst idea in the world. Her Kalasar had recovered from the Red Waste, and they were nomadic warriors at heart, not staying in one place for too long. But Danny too has probably stayed here for too long. Strangely, everyone didn't really like her after she destroyed the House of the Undying. Maybe the dragons were dangerous after all. Who knew? The Tourmaline Brotherhood wanted her exiled, and the ancient Guild of Spicers wanted her dead. Thankfully, Zaro had kept the 13 from joining the quote-unquote expel Danny faction, or the quote-unquote kill Danny faction in Karth. But where am I to go? Sir Jorah proposes that the, they journey farther east, away from her enemies in the Seven Kingdoms. Her blood riders would sooner have returned her to the, her blood riders would have sooner returned to their great grass sea, even if it meant braving the red waste again. Danny herself, Danny herself had toyed with the idea of settling in Vase Taloro until her dragons grew straight and strong, but her heart was full of doubts. Each of these felt wrong somehow, and even when she decided where to go, the question of how she would get there remained troublesome. Zaro wasn't going to help her anymore, though. Sure, he played at being devoted to her, but when Danny asked for her, asked him for a small gift, he said no. Well, not exactly no. He just stopped talking about gifts. He wants to trade instead, like real businessmen. And what would they trade? A dragon, perhaps, for ten ships? Deal? No, Danny said. Now that wasn't what Zaro wanted to hear. Danny counters by asking whether a mother would sell one of her children. Yeah, happens all the time, according to Zaro. But that ain't Danny's way. She wouldn't sell one of her dragons for 10, 20, 32, the actual number of ships that Zaro has on hand, 83 ships, the total number of ships Zaro has in total all around the world, 100 ships, 1,000 ships, the 13 possessed in total, the 2,000 or so ships that the Spicers and the Tourmaline Brotherhood have in total. Okay, what about the free cities? Ashai, Bravos, the Summer Islands, Ib, everywhere else who sails the ocean, how many ships do they all have? Many more, Zaro said irritably. What does it matter? Well, I am trying to set a price on the, on one of the three living dragons in the world, Danny smiled sweetly at him. It seems to me that one third of all the ships in the world would be fair. Zaro's tears ran down his cheeks and either side of his jewel-encrusted nose. Did I not warn you not to enter the palace of dust? This is the very thing I feared. The whispers of the warlocks have made you as mad as Malarwin's wife. A third of all the ships in the world, pa, pa, I say, pa. That was the last time Danny had seen Zaro. He did send some texts, though. She had to leave his house. He wasn't going to feed her anymore. The gifts he gave her were to be returned at once. At least Danny didn't marry this motherfucker. Danny wonders if maybe Zaro or Pyatt were the second or third treasons that Miri Mazdora talked about, but she doesn't think so. Pyatt wasn't doing this for gold, and Zaro didn't love her. Back to the present, the streets grow empty as Danny walks along the dockside. She thinks about the House of the Undying, wondering at the things she had heard. What was all that dragon has three heads talk, she asked Jorah. That's probably symbolic of a sigil of the House Targaryen, Jorah answers. Okay, but there are no actual three-headed Ghidorah about, right? It's just symbolism. Jorah, the redder, answers. The three heads were Aegon and his two sisters. Indeed, Danny descends from Rhaenys, Aenys, and Jaehaerys. Talk turns to the warlocks and the Undying. They're obvious liars according to Jorah. Not so fast, Danny says. She saw some shit in the House of the Undying. A dead man in the prow of a ship, a blue rose, a banquet of blood. 
what does any of it mean, Khaleesi? A mummer's dragon, you say? What does a mummer's dragon pray? A cloth dragon on poles, Danny explained. Mummers use them in their follies to give their heroes something to fight. Sir Jorah frowns, but Danny refuses to let it go. His is the song of ice and fire, my brother said. I'm certain it was my brother, not Viserys, Rhaegar. He had a harp with silver strings. Sir Jorah's frown deepened until his eyebrows came together. Prince Rhaegar played such a harp he could see it. You saw him? She nodded. There was a woman in the bed with a babe at her breast. My brother said the babe was the prince that was promised and told her to name him Aegon. Jorah goes on to say that Aegon was Rhaegar's son by Elia Martell and Rhaegar's heir, but the kid was dead. Danny knows that he was murdered, so too was Princess Rhaenys, but there was no Visenya. So, three heads of the dragon? It doesn't make sense. P.S. What is this so-called Song of Ice and Fire? It's no song I've ever heard, Jorah said. I went to the warlocks hoping for answers, but instead they've left me with a hundred new questions. But we can't answer these questions. This is only book two. They're still in Karth, and they need to get out now. Jogo smells the air suspiciously, commenting that he smells the sea. His nose is suspicious because, remember, the Dothraki distrusts the poisoned water. Gee, wonder if we're ever going to hear about that again. Basically, all the time in a storm of swords, Danny won. But Danny thinks she survived the Dothraki sea. They can survive her sea. Then George decides on doing some world-building of Karth, trying to make it seem really awesome. But the takeaway is that Karth is a big city, and it has a big port. Ago buys a skewer of honey-roasted mice to nibble on from one of the market stalls, while Jogo eats some white cherries. Danny sees lots of merch lying around that's being sold or loaded onto ships. She does see some slaves that are being offloaded from a ship and bid on as well. Danny and Jorah, back at his knight's attire, decide to go talk with the captains of various ships to see if they can get passage out of Karth. But negotiations don't go well. Some laugh at her. Eliseni thinks she's joking. One captain would take the dragons on board, but not the Dothraki, which... <laughs> and even the captains that weren't assholes had too high of an asking price, too small of a ship, or ships that look more likely to sink than sail. So, having failed to find a ship, J Danny, Jorah, and her party walk back... Danny and Jorah walk back towards their Dothraki. But then Jorah notices something. He very non-creepily puts his hand on the small of Danny's back and leans toward her. Your grace, you're being followed. No, don't turn. He guided her gently towards a brass seller's booth. This is a noble work, my grace, he proclaimed loudly, lifting a large platter for her inspection. See how it, how it shines in the sun. The brass was polished to a high sheen. Danny could see her face in it, and when Sir Jorah angled it to the right, she could see behind it. I, I see a fat brown man and an old man with a staff. Which, which is it? Both of them, Sir Jorah said. They have been following us since we left Quicksilver. Danny looks into the plate and sees that the one dude seems long and gaunt and the other fat and broad. The, the merchant starts praising the platter when Danny knows it's worthless. Three honors at best is all it's really worth, according to Danny. The merchant and Danny haggle over the price as she continues to see the men behind her watching their movements. The old man had the look of Westeros about him, and the brown-skinned one must weigh twenty stone. The usurper offered a lordship to a man who kills me, and these two are far from home. Or could they be creatures of the warlocks, meant to take me unawares? The, bar the bartering continues as Danny and Jorah continue to observe the men. The fat dude has an arak with tons of scars across his belly. The thin man had a hardwood staff. But Danny notices something else. The old man stares at her. Would someone who meant to kill her stare so openly at her? Still, Danny should head back. Jorah comments that the staff can crack Danny's head open as the merchant keeps dropping his price down to four honors. They start to leave the merchant stall ostensibly because they're done with negotiation, but in reality, they want to see if the two men will follow him. Four! I, I, I know you want it! He danced in front of him, the merchant that was, scampering backwards as he thrust the platter at their faces. Do they follow? Danny asks. 
Lift that up a little higher, the knight told the merchant. Yes, yes, the old man pretends to linger at the potter's stall, but the brown one has eyes only for you. The merchant finally says he'll sell it for two honors, and Danny orders the man paid. She turns back, and then a Carthine man steps in her path. Mother of dragons, for you. He knelt and thrust a jewel box into her face. Danny took it almost by reflex. The box was carved wood, its mother-of-pearl lid inlaid with jasper and chalcedony. You, you are too generous. She opened it. Within was a glittering green scarab covered from onyx and emerald. Beautiful, she thought. This will help pay for our passage. As she reached inside the box, the man said, I am so sorry. But she hardly heard it. The scarab unfolded with a hiss. Danny sees a glimpse of the manicure's face, black, almost human, tail full of venom, and the box flies from her hand, blasts into pieces. Pain wells in her fingers. A woman screams. The Carthines shout and push each other. Jorah slams into her. Danny falls to the ground. She hears a hiss as the old man drives the butt of his staff into the ground. Your grace, a thousand pardons, the old man knelt. It's dead. Did I break your hand? She closed her fingers, wincing. I, I don't think so. I had to knock it away, he started, but her blood riders were on him before he could finish. Ago kicked his staff away and Jogo seized him round the shoulders, forced him to his knees and pressed a dagger to his throat. Khaleesi, we saw him strike you. Would you see the color of his blood? Danny does not want to see this, though. She orders him released and sees that Jorah has been shoved off his feet by the big eunuch. Jorah comes up with a sword in hand and meets the, uh, the eunuch's arak. Danny screams for everyone to stop fighting, but Jorah thinks these men attack Danny. They were defending me, Danny snapped her hand to shake the sting from her fingers. It was the other one, the Carthine. When she looked around, he was gone. He was a sorrowful man. There was a manticore in the jewel box he gave me. The, the man knocked it out of my hand. Danny goes over to the brass merchant and helps him up. She asks if the manticore stung him. It didn't, but it had touched him. Danny notices that the man had shit himself. She gives the man a silver and sends him before turning back to the old man. She asks who she owes her life to. You owe me nothing, your grace. I am called... Arstan, though. Balwas named me Whitebeard on the voyage here. Arstan, huh? Weird. That sounds like this other guy's no this other guy I know. His name was Barstan? Karstan? Larstan? Barristan? Maybe. I'll workshop this name. Maybe I'll figure out along the way. The old man asks about Belwas, and Belwas is strong Belwas. He was a veteran of, a, of the fighting pits of Mirene. He lets every man cut him once before he kills them. It's his trademark. P.S. Do you want to count the cuts, Danny? You want to see how many men he's killed? No, Danny doesn't really want to do that, but she would like to know why Strong Belwas is here. As to that, he came via way of Mirene, by way of Kohor, and then Pentos when he was dispatched by a fat man whose hair smelled sweetly. Irish Spring, maybe? Danny realizes who this might be. Illyrio! Were they sent by Illyrio? We were, your grace, old Whitebeard replied. The magister begs your kind indulgence for sending us in his stead, but he cannot sit a horse as he did in his youth and sea travel to upset his digestion. Earlier he had spoken in the Valyrian of the free cities, but now he changed to the common tongue. I regret if we caused you alarm, if truth told. We were not certain. We expected someone more... more... regal? Danny laughed. She had no dragon with her, and her raiment was hardly queenly. You speak the common tongue well, Arston. Are you of Westeros? Why, yes, he was. He came from the Dornish marches, and he was a squire for one of Lord Swan's knights. But now Arston is a squire for Belwas. Jorah thinks this Arston is a bit old to be a squire, but he's not too old to serve his liege. Isn't that right, Lord Mormont? So Arston, Arston knows Jorah? He does. He saw him fight at Lannisport in turning and on Pike. Jorah says this guy's face seems familiar, but there were so many people at Lannisport and Pike. But Jorah ain't a lord. Bear Island was stolen for reasons that, you know, he doesn't need to really get into right now. But Jorah is a knight. That he is. A knight of my queen's guard. Danny took his arm. And my true friend and good counselor. 
She studied Arston's face. He had a great dignity to him, a quiet strength she liked. Rise, Arston Whitebeard. Be welcome. Strong Belwas. Sir Jorah, you know. Ko-Ago and Ko-Jogo are blood of my blood. They crossed the red waste with me and saw my dragons born. Belwas immediately calls the Dothraki horse boys, which I think is awesome and hilarious, but Ago doesn't share my sense of humor as he leaps up with his arrack in hand, ready to kill Belwas. Danny again tells everyone to put up their steel. Stop fighting, dudes. These people are here to serve her, but Belwas is to keep a chase tongue or he's gone. Belwas stops smiling and Danny realizes that this guy doesn't get scolded often. So now that the boys aren't threatening each other with swords and arrows, Danny wants to know why Illyria would order these guys to come from Pentos. They're here for the dragons, says Belwas gruffly. And for Danny too. Arston says that Belwas is right. They were going to bring Danny and the dragons back. Westeros needs her. Robert Baratheon is dead and the realm bleeds. When we set sail from Pentos, there were four knights in the land and no justice to be had. Joy bloomed in Danny's heart, but Danny kept it from her face. I have three dragons, she said, and more than a hundred my Kalasar with all their goods and horses. Belwas says, who cares? They'll take everyone as Illyrio has provided three ships for Daenerys and their party. Three ships, Danny thinks, like the three heads of the dragon? Hmm. But she doesn't like the names of Sedulian, Summer Sun, and Joso's prank. She's renaming them. Vagar, Daenerys told him. Meraxes and Balarion. Paint the names on their halls in golden letters at three feet high, Arston. I want every man who sees them to know that the dragons are returned. And that is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings, Daenerys 5. All right. Well, as far as point of view, char character collusions for a book, that is definitely a point of view character conclusion for Daenerys Targaryen and Clash of Kings. What did you think, sir, of this, this chapter? Well, if I'm going to be honest, and I guess <laughs> I should be, uh, this is probably my least favorite chapter in A Clash of Kings. Uh, this is the anticlimax of the Karth storyline, where the city that's supposed to be a dangerous source of temptation lets Danny go without much of a fight. Every other Danny storyline ends with a bang. She brings dragons back in a Game of Thrones, resolves to rule in Slaver's Bay in a Storm of Swords, and embraces fire and blood instead in a Dance with Dragons. Here she decides to leave Karth, because <laughs> it sucks here. And then some new characters pop up out of nowhere to help. It's weak tea by comparison. That being said, there is still a lot to like about this chapter at a more granular level. I love all the little details, and we get a crucial and very meta conversation between Danny and Jorah. So I promise not to be too negative as we go. Yeah, I'll reciprocate and promise not to be too negative, too. Well, I promise not to be too negative after these opening remarks. Best I can do. Because, ugh, this chapter... Sure, you got good world building. I like to check in on the latest iteration of Illyrio's plan. There's something to be said for Jorah, of all people. And Euron, I mean, Eurothun Nightwalker gets a mention. But that that's it for me, man. This is the weakest chapter in Clash of Kings and definitely the weakest cha Danny chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, now, why is that the case? Was George phoning it in? Yeah, kinda. I, the sense I get from George's writing of Karth and all the extra textual material we have on Karth. Remember, I talked about this in... Our analysis on Danny's second chapter is barely anything at all in the Sospake Margin archive. Is that the, the sense I get is that George was bored by his own setting and he wanted to move on as quickly as possible from it. It didn't have to be that way. I, I, I repeat myself from Danny 1, 2, and 3, but so is George. But Danny's Slaver's Bay arc in A Storm of Swords could also be viewed as a narrative speed bump for Danny here. But there, George really nailed Danny's story, her reckoning with her own slavery, her taking on a messianic conquering role on a violent yet moral crusade to end slavery in Slaver's Bay. 
But then you have the aftermath and the knowledge that winning the war doesn't solve shit. And her deciding to rule a city-state at the end of that arc rather than move forward to Westeros is just really thrilling stuff. But what's the takeaway from Karth at the end of A Clash King's Daenerys 5? I mean, you said it more succinctly than, than I could say it here. It sucks, and she is moving on. And we're gonna we're gonna have to just move on with her ultimately, and and you know, kind of enjoy what little scraps we can from this chapter. After the fall of the House of Usher, I mean the Undying, <laughs> uh, Danny's warm welcome in Karth has run out. As she says, they they remembered dragons are dangerous. The Carthine initially saw her as spectacle, as a shadow on a wall. She was a way to make money, a circus act no different than the fiery ladder. Carth is like Hollywood, a city of beautiful surfaces, as a comparison Chloe, a.k.a. Lysen Arbor, has made before. As in The Wizard of Oz, the mortal sin of any dream world is looking behind the curtain, breaking the fourth wall. The House of the Undying was the literal heart of that image factory, fantasy made flesh, Danny burned it down, so basically now she's being blacklisted. Zara warns her that the remaining warlocks are planning on getting their revenge. Danny reminds him that he said the warlocks are powerless. And so he did. Back when he was trying to seduce Danny to stay in Karth with him. It served his interests to downplay the warlocks. Hmm. Now Zara wants Danny to leave town with him, so it serves him to play up the warlocks as a threat. Zara is never genuine. Like Karth itself, there is nothing meaningful underneath the glittering surface, only self-interest. I love the passage where Zero explains the changes in Karth that have him worried. It's all these weird little details that don't add up. You could argue that this is self-indulgent worldbuilding, but I think it fits with the nature of Zero and of Karth as well as Danny's story as a whole. Glass candles and ghost grass, phantom tortoises and rat tails. The images are so vivid, so specific, but what do they actually mean? <laughs> All they really suggest is that something is happening. Something has changed. But the observer has to decide what that something is. There is a concept in the Hindu faith called Kakataliya. The Sanskrit text Yoga Vasistha gives this example. A bird lands on a tree branch. Simultaneously, a fruit falls from the branch. Did the bird cause that? Or was the fruit ripe and it would have fallen at that exact moment anyway? The limits of perception, especially bound within linear time, make it impossible to answer. Along the same lines, George neither confirms nor denies that the warlocks have gained power, that all these signs mean something. It's a possibility that never resolves. This is relevant to Danny because all she has to work with in terms of home is signs and signifiers. She doesn't remember Westeros, so she has to rely on suggestions that don't add up to reality any more than these do. Last week we talked about how Dantos didn't witness directly the conclusion to the Battle of Blackwater. He could only pass on the story to Sansa, the detached image shot through with his own limited perception. Same applies here. Zero says that a blind man in the city now can see the definition of a divine miracle, or so his slaves report, anyway. <laughs> we have no direct, unmediated access to the truth. All we have are stories, images out of context. We might as well be that blind man, eating eyes and hoping to see. All Zero can do is wonder. But the truth isn't important to him. All that matters is that strange things are happening, and that's bad for trade. Zero cares about profit, full stop, and wields the power of perception to make money. 
He counters the dark visions of the House of the Undying, as he says, with his own bright dream of marrying Danny. But just as the Undying lured Danny in with images before trying to suck her dry, Zero is luring Danny in with words while trying to make off with one of her dragons. <laughs> he offers her ships in exchange, but as Danny points out, this is hardly equal. Her dragons are unique. How do you put a price tag on a miracle? She loves them like children. Would you ask a mother to sell her children? Yep, Zero says he would. <laughs> That's his worldview. People are units of currency, negotiable as anything else. He has no heart, no humanity that would lead him to think differently. It's a classic argument over the worth of the individual. Stannis and Davos will have a similar exchange in the Storm of Swords. What worth a single child? Everything, Davos says, and Danny agrees. Her dragons are living beings, equivalent in worth to all the lifeless ships in the world. Money can't buy love, Tywin said. Money can't stable your horse or buy you a hall when you're trying to keep warm at night. And Danny makes the same argument, but flipped on behalf of love rather than money. Yeah, you can't buy it. That's what makes it so special. Zero can only interpret this as madness. Oh, the child queen is so arrogant that she wants a third of all the ships in the world. He fails to see the metaphor, the idea that each individual contains the world entire. A city without meaning cannot comprehend meaning when Danny talks about it. There's no love here. This, Danny finally understands, is how Karth works. It promises more than it can ever deliver while stripping away what little you have. As she thinks, Zero and Piat Pri were playing the same game. Magical, political, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Zero then finally kicks her out with a series of hilariously bitchy messages. <laughs> I do wish there was more teeth to his rejection that he was made to feel a little more intimidating mm -hmm. and scary, but it does fit the nature of Karth. In the end, you become passive. All your surface desires have been sated in this city, and you lose the will to dig deeper. Karth can be seen as George interrogating the utopian ideal by casting it as just hedonism that doesn't change any structure. He's building, kind of more cynically, on Moore's Utopia, Plato's Republic, and Campanella's City of the Sun to create a city in which individual wealth and splendor does not solve the conflict in the human heart. Money can't buy happiness, I guess, is the ultimate takeaway from Karth, right? Exactly. Yeah. Maybe. Well, we'll see. I think another striking feature for our final Zaro, Zoandaxis, and Daenerys Targaryen interaction, at least until A Dance with Dragons, is that Zaro doesn't use compulsion to try and seize a dragon from Daenerys. He merely asks and then suggests a trade when asking fails. And yet we know from earlier Danny chapters in A Clash of Kings that Karth has something of a military, camel riders and such, and a fleet. So why didn't Zaro try to steal a dragon a la what the Borlocks attempted with Daenerys in Game of Thrones Season 2? The answer, I think, is what you were saying about the passivity of Karth. Sure, the Tourmaline Brotherhood demand her expulsion, the ancient guild of Spicers, that great Dune reference, demand Danny's death, but they do fuck all to accomplish their objective. All of the wealth that Karth receives from its place as a trading hub in Essos has made the wealthiest of Karth indolent, lazy, passive. It's simply not worth the effort for Zaro here, and that begs the question of why he was after a dragon in the first place. To Zaro and the Carthine, I, I, I don't think they wanted a dragon to conquer the world or restore a Carthian military supremacy. It's not the sense I get. What I think is that Zaro and the rest of the Carthian aristocracy, minus the warlocks, I guess, simply wanted a trophy, another thing that displays Karth's fabled wealth and beauty. And maybe, arguably, they're using a dragon for their own internal con conflict that they have with each other and the various 
the various conflicts they have therein with all the different factions. But I think ultimately, Dany's dragons to the Carthine are a thing to be possessed, much as most of Zaro's Mance was in the same way. Again, as you and Chloe were talking about, the Hollywood parallel is spot on, as I think this could be George's annoyance that some of his IP is owned by Hollywood Studios. Sure, but sure. now that possession is a danger to trade, to business, and they have to go. It's just business, Danny, nothing personal. But coming days with dragons, Karth will finally stir. The ships that Danny so desperately wants to take her somewhere will actually finally depart Karth for war. But it's a war against Daenerys Targaryen and Marine. What stirs Karth to take up arms against Daenerys Targaryen and the Dance of Dragons to pull them from all that passivity that we see throughout their story in A Clash of Kings? I think Cavo from Tyrion's sixth chapter in The Dance of Dragons sums it up really nicely. This arrogant child has taken it upon herself to smash the slave trade, but that traffic was never confined to Slaver's Bay. It was part of the sea of trade that spanned the world, and the Dragon Queen has clouded the water. Danny's dragons here in A Clash of Kings don't threaten Karth's wealth. They merit passivity, but come and dance with dragons. Karth bestirs itself and sails a fleet and army to Marine to defend the slave trade, a part of the economic order which allows them their manses, glories, and their wealth. And I think that's such a damning indictment of this city, the city of Karth. I agree. That's their only interest at the end of the day. It's much more naked and base than they'd like to think of themselves. It's hidden beneath all that flowery language, all those shell games that they play. Mm-hmm. Danny interprets Zero kicking her out as a sign of the untrustworthy nature of Karth, but she also puts it in context with the images of the House of the Undying. Was Zero one of the three treasons? What about Piat Pri? She doesn't think so, although she is sure that Miri Mazdor was the treason for blood. What matters here isn't whether Danny is right or wrong, so much as the changes the House of the Undying has wrought on her thought process. She is retrofitting her life to suit this prophetic narrative. Everything that has happened and will happen to her now exists in relation to the House of the Undying. The events and people of her life carry a new significance. They exist in context now. They are links in a chain, pictures in a frame. The experience was so powerful that it changed her perspective, like a spiritual awakening. Or, more literally, like the aftermath of Trippic. (laughs) Drugs, religion, narrative itself, George is aiming for a sweet spot at the center of all of them. They all make you look at things differently. The tricky question is whether the things themselves have changed, or only you. That's all the trickier because, as I said earlier, there's no such thing as an unmediated perspective. There's no neutral control to compare things to. Reality and perception are like the chicken and the egg. Is color the property of an object, or is it a property of your mind, or somehow both? Who makes the world? Does our perspective reveal things, or change them? Physics can't fully answer these questions any more than philosophy can. So many threes, Danny thinks to herself. The rule of three in stories is well established. George uses this pattern over and over again. So why is that? Is that an artifact of nature, a gift from the gods? Or do our brains like it just because? Because it goes bup to bup to boo and we like that. Throughout Danny's conversation with Jorah about the House of the Undying, George calls attention to his own storytelling mechanisms, showing us how they work. Danny asks Jorah what the Undying could have meant by the dragon has three heads. Jorah points out that the Targaryen dragon banner has three heads. Danny says she knows that, which of course she does, but she's never seen it flying over the Red Keep herself. 
It's an abstract concept in her mind. Like Westeros itself, it has nothing to do with the life she has actually lived. Danny says that there are no three-headed dragons. Jorah says the sigil refers to Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters. It's a metaphor, and George is showing us how metaphors aren't just in stories. They're part of everyday life. For Danny, this image is a synecdoche of her history. She is descended from two of those three heads. My reality comes from that metaphor. Jorah cautions against projecting so much of herself into images. Blue lips tell only lies, he says. But he's quoting Zaro, who's also a liar. <laughs> Jorah himself has pointed out before how untrustworthy Zaro is. Now, however, it suits him to quote Zaro, as it suited Zaro to interpret mysterious signs around the city so as to support his pre-existing plans for Danny. Right. And I think like this conversation between Danny and Jorah is the most podcasty part of this chapter where our two hosts debate the meaning of, of the text here. You could sense that George was writing this while sitting back and remembering that time back in the late 60s or the early 70s where he and such and such talked about the meaning of the one true ring. Is it merely symbolism for the corruption of power? Is it actually powerful? What does it all mean? And boy... Jorah quoting Zaro, someone he thinks is a liar. I mean, come on. How many times have we, as fans, heard someone quoting that war criminal Tywin Lannister in a story <laughs> about something to prove a point? As I might do later in this podcast. In seriousness, oh, though, George... <laughs> I know, right? In, in seriousness, though, George has talked about how he writes a song of ice and fire to reward rereading and discussion of his books. And it's great that we have that occurring in-universe in The Clash of Kings, Danny Five. But I think it's it's speaking to something else beyond just the meta. It's that human desire to understand the world we live in and the mysteries that surround us. And when we have questions about something that's bothering us, we turn to other people to try and come up with an answer or something resembling an answer. As far as my own life goes, often I don't find any definitive answer to a question they have, even when I'm talking with friends. Often I'm left with more and more questions that I feel like require more and more investigation. The cycle goes on and on and on. God, you do not want to live inside my brain. But sometimes, even if there's not an answer, there's comfort in just discussing the deeper mysteries of this world and our destinies with a friend. Or, in this case, Jorah Mormon, who, of course, sucks so, so bad. Danny seems to find some comfort in this conversation, at least expressing herself, of unburning herself of the visions she experienced in the house, the undying. But she's not going to find the answers. Or, maybe better put, she's not going to find the right answers. Everyone in this chapter believes they can access an unclouded vision of the truth. And everyone is wrong. Even as Danny concedes the point, she can't help but analyze what she saw in the House of the Undying. George uses a terrific simile here. Danny found her thoughts returning to the Palace of Dust once more, as the tongue returns to a space left by a missing tooth. The space left by a missing tooth. Is that a thing in itself, or is it just the absence of something else? It's dead air, but it has a form around it suggesting shape, what used to be a tooth. That's how the House of the Undying works, and that's how stories work. We can't help ourselves. We have to prod that empty space, filling it up with our interpretations, filling it up with ourselves. Even the specific images themselves point to that dynamic. Danny defines the Mummer's Dragon as something Mummers put into their shows to give the heroes something to fight. Stories are not born organically from the ether, they are constructed by storytellers. Whatever in-universe motivation the villain may have, the real reason they are there is to give the hero something to fight. It's as if Danny briefly glimpsed George behind the veil, 
and realize that she's in an artificial universe, playing by deliberate narrative rules she could figure out. She even stumbled upon the title of the series itself, <laughs> A Song of Ice and Fire, spoken by her fallen brother Rhaegar. This is what starts to sway Jorah. Rhaegar's harp, his wife with his newborn child. These are tangible connections to the Westeros that Jorah, unlike Danny, knows well. It's the proof of concept, demonstrating that the House of the Undying is not pure bunk. There's stuff that Danny shouldn't know that she now knows. That's as far as they can get, though. Because whatever was supposed to happen with Rhaegar and Aegon VI was wiped out by Robert's Rebellion. Danny is in the position of the reader, picking up scraps, wondering at the meaning of the cryptic title. The Song of Ice and Fire, it's no song Jorah has heard, and of course not because he's in it. I love this kind of meta gambit, from Hamlet's play within the play, to the comic book hero Animal Man declaring that he can see the reader. It only resonates, however, if you give it an emotional hook, if you make it real for the character. And I think you were exactly right. In this case, Danny gradually realizes that she's just not going to find the answers, especially because the House of the Undying is now Ash. She briefly perceived the Hand of Fate, and then woke back up in a world in which all she has are her choices. Are those choices still meaningful? The House of the Undying was a dream that seemed more real than real, which kind of ruins reality in the way that great stories kind of ruin reality for a bit. I think uh, Vladimir Nabokov writes about this really well. The wonder of that brief abyss of absolute reality between two bogus fulgurations of fabricated life. Danny is now in the worst of both worlds, aware of her cage but unable to escape it, aka the human condition. We can only imagine our way out, through faith, empathy, art, dreams, as Danny and Jorah do here. The Dothraki see the fall of the House of the Undying as a victory for Danny, worthy of a bell in her braid. You bearded the lions in their den. But Danny thinks that it was Drogon who saved the day, not her. And anyway, it wasn't victory she wanted in Karth. It was wisdom, and she's not sure that she found it. <laughs> so Danny realizes that the whole point of Karth is to trap you in place, and so it's time for her and her people to move on. Move on to where, though? <laughs> that question will be answered at the end of the chapter. As it begins, Danny is not sure. None of the options feel right, and then there's the how to consider. In order to leave, Danny and her Kalasar must head out to the port. Right away, we get a sense that this is a different part of Karth from the rest. As the chapter begins, Danny is dining on shrimp and persimmon soup, a typical Karth delicacy that sounds more fancy than actually good. But while, she, <laughs> while she's eating this, she refuses the fancy Samite gown. The docks are no place for such finery, she says. Instead, she will ride there in Dothraki garb. And this represents her leaving Karthine culture behind. Mm -hmm. If the milkmen are so determined to see her as a mere horse girl, she may as well dress the part. As Tyrion will say in Storm, I will become what you think of me. But here, the, the difference with, with Tyrion is that Tyrion shades that in a, in a negative way. Like, he's like, I'm going to become the monster that you think that I am, as, as, as he'll say. Whereas here, I think that this is actually showing some character progression and good character beats for Danny that she is dressing the part, showing early sparks of the leader that she's about to become in A Storm of Swords, at least the larger leader that's of, of the larger group of people. Because she abandons, in addition to abandoning her gown, she also abandons the palanquin that she was carried around in and opts to ride her silver that Drogo gave her. She's also, as, as you were saying, donned Dothraki garments again and refuses a Carthine gown. 
And finally, she allows Jiqui to braid a, several bells into her hair, signifying her first victory, which, you know, as you pointed out, she doesn't feel like she's earned this as she doesn't as she doesn't think this was her victory it was Drogon's. But these are still important. But why? For one, I think it demonstrates that Danny is opting to live like her people, not an exalted princess who is literally born upon their backs and carried around everywhere. She'll face the same dangers as they face, which contrasts, of course, with Cersei ordering Joffrey withdrawn from the walls. It also shows that Danny is finally moving again. The palanquin Carthine gown slowed her movement down. Ergo, Carth only slowed Danny down and she is moving on. That's a bit of a metaphor for George, I think, here. Finally, that bell in her hair is doing really good visual politics in front of her people. It may not be a crown, but it almost acts as a Roman victor's laurel, symbolizing her as the victor. She defeated the warlocks, she defeated the undying. And I think, you know, something as we see a lot in Westeros is that people tend to be more inclined to follow someone they view as a success. Whether that translates culturally from Essos to Westeros, that's something we'll explore most definitely in A Dream of Spring next week. Well, nothing succeeds like success, right? It has its own momentum. If you look mm-hmm. like you're a winner, you become a winner. That's kind of what Renly was trying to trying to make happen earlier on in The Clash of Kings. So we have this port. The port is Danny's entryway back to the world outside the Mirage pocket universe of Karth. This is where all cultures mingle together. Danny has to ride through a poorer part of town to reach it, so the golden illusion of wealth in Zero's manse is fading. On this reread, I noticed the parallels between Karth's port and the western market of Vice to Thrak back in A Game of Thrones. Both <laughs> settings overwhelm the senses. Someone tries to kill Danny in both places. You have the wine cellar in Vysterthrock and the sorrowful man here. In both cases, she then turns toward Westeros before being diverted. You have Drogo saying, we're going to go across the narrow sea and, and attack the people in their iron castles, etc., etc. And then uh, they get and they get diverted by Miriam Mazdur in the birth of the dragons. In this case, you have these ships that are going to take Danny back to Westeros, but then she, uh, of course, ends up going to Slaver's Bay. So very similar pattern in both cases. The port in Karth is even more vivid than in Vaistothrak. Danny's blood riders eat honey-roasted mice and fat white cherries. Danny smells frying fish and hot tar and sperm all at once. But she's also learned enough about Karth to realize that this is the city's black market. People who can't afford the official bazaars come here. Like everywhere else in Karth, it runs on deception. Danny notices quote-unquote dragon's eggs for sale that look a lot like painted rocks. Danny has the real deal, living, breathing miracles that burst out of what seemed like just dead rock. All Karth can offer is the rock, the image, the concept, the surface appeal, as with Zero's miniature army that he offered back in Danny 3. But Danny's authenticity won't serve her with the ship captains. They refuse her for a variety of reasons. Every part of her coalition seems to offend someone. Some of the captains are afraid of dragons. Some of them are bigoted against the Dothraki. Some of them, though, just don't believe her legend, who she is, who she's supposed to be, where she's going. She's just kind of like too good to be true almost. I agree with that. I think it's a great catch you made about the Western market slash murder attempt parallel. It's, that's really awesome that, that George does that again and infuses it with a little bit of a different atmosphere and, and, and plot setting and character motivation. The thing that, that caught my attention on this reread is that for all I criticize Danny's Carthine arc, and I will return to that in just a moment here, there is something to be said for the vibrancy of this part of Karth, at least the port, as a setting. Danny is a real figure of prophetic destiny, the mother of dragons, but the world doesn't simply exist to react to her presence. The port in Karth goes about buying and selling and conducting today's business and only interacts with Danny and her party as they make contact with them in buying honeyed mice and white cherries. 
The Messiah may move among them, but they have their own lives and jobs to attend to. The bustle makes the place kind of feel alive and not just a stage for Danny to act upon. There's also something to be said for how George does a great job of making Danny the reader avatar for a new and unfamiliar place. Again, which is very similar to what he does in the eastern and western markets from Vase to Thrak. Danny doesn't say a word for four long paragraphs here in A Clash of Kings, Danny 5. She's taking in the sights and sounds of Karth much as we are. George has Danny watching the experience of Karth on our behalf, and that allows us to see Karth in our own mind's eye. But again, <laughs> this is Karth, and there's always something just a little bit off about the writing. Before Arston and Belwas show up, Danny is with her followers and she asks them about where she might go. Jorah suggests heading farther east, while her blood riders want her to head back to the Dothraki Sea. Danny herself thinks she might return to Vase to Loro until her dragons grow up, but she doubts herself and finally decides on going somewhere else, despite Danny describing the journey and how she would get there as quote unquote troublesome. So, you, Emmett, you're a smart and observant man, and you'll probably know the answer here, but I have a question for you. Where does Danny decide to go here in this chapter? Do you do you know? How about you, the audience who are watching on the live stream? If you've reread this chapter before you came listening to this podcast, where is Danny actually going to go to before Arston and Whitebeard show up? Or at least Arston Whitebeard and Strong Bella show up. I'll pause for a second and wait for some answers. Time's up. It's not explicitly said in the text, but the inference is that Danny decides that she's going to Westeros, and we can infer this as she heads all the way back over to the part of the port where the sailors and captains speak Valyrian or the common tongue, and also thinks that the 30 ships Zaro has could land a small army Westeros, but she doesn't have a small army. But here, the less than great writing of Karth rears its ugly head again. Why is this supposed to be a mystery for us as readers? Why does Danny decide to go for Westeros? What's Danny's plan to take Westeros when she gets there? As for the ambiguity of where Danny is going, the argument could be that George wanted it to be a surprise, but that really doesn't work as narrative because, of course, Arsene and Bella show up and convince Danny to go to Pentos before Danny scotches that plan after Jorah convinces her to try for Astapor and the Unsullied. As to why Danny is heading for Westeros, I, I think, and this is just me guessing here, I think George tries to tie it together obliquely with Danny and Jorah attempting to analyze the prophecies from the House of the Undying and having those prophecies point to her and to her place in Westeros. But it doesn't work because Danny isn't making the connections of what she saw in the House of the Undying explicitly with her wanting to go to Westeros. Furthermore, I would just guess that maybe Danny's plan was that the dragons would grow in size during the long journey to Westeros, and that would be how she attempts to conquer Westeros. But again, that's not made explicit in the text as entering Danny's mind at any point in this chapter. Instead, she's going to Westeros because she has to leave Karth, and I guess she's going to go to Westeros, I guess. Now, I think. If George had been writing Karth with the similar precise writing he does for Danny's game, storm, and dance arcs, he might have tried tying her decisions to the prophecies she experienced in the House of the Undying, coupled with her desire for home, and then connected that desire with her memories of Viserys and her constantly being on the run and Viserys' desire for home. Remember that in A Game of Thrones when Viserys was not being an abusive asshole, he would look far off in the distance and see home and talk lovingly about home and the Red Keep and King's Landing and Dragonstone and all those places, that could have been a powerful moment. But George doesn't do the necessary character work to make Danny wants to go home believable or compelling, at least here in A Clash of Kings, Danny 5. Karth, man, is such an enigma of writing for me. At points, it's some of George's finest prose with the following of the Bleeding Star across the Red Waste and the House of the Undying from Danny 4. But at other points, like here, it's feels uninspired, and I return back to my opening thoughts that the lack of inspiration for Danny and Karth 
can be sourced to George's own boredom with the place and how that bled into Danny's less than stellar characterization in this book. I agree totally. What's interesting about Karth, what works is hard to get at. It's there's It seems like it's not being executed properly. There's a lot of structural bits that are choppy and getting in the way. So at last in this chapter, as they're walking the port, uh, the plot shows up as Jorah notices that they're being followed. I do like the gambit with the bl- with the brass tray. It's another perfect microcosm of Karth. It's a reflective surface that distorts whatever you're looking at and rips you off in the process. That's the house of the undying. That's the fiery ladder. Everything is a performance, a mummer's farce, as Danny says. Jorah pretends to admire the brass. The salesman pretends that it's worth more than it is, and also pretends not to hear their whispered conversation. The presence of the stalkers adds tension to the scene, but the salesman's haggling is comedic. He drops the price without blinking, chewing the scenery as he goes on about his wives beating him for selling it for so little. The scene is so extended and he becomes so desperate for a sale that he offers it for less than Danny thought it was worth. He's not even profiting anymore. And yet, after the assassination attempt, Danny ends up paying him a silver for his trouble. (laughs) So, Karth rips Danny off one last time on the way out. (laughs) So yeah, that assassination attempt from the sorrowful man with the manticore. I'm with Stephen Atwell that it's disappointingly low-key. This is the biggest threat Danny faces in Karth, really? But it's still a solid misdirection. You think the threat is coming from Danny's stalkers, and then they're the ones who wind up saving her. Danny gets a chance here, as you were saying earlier, to show off her leadership skills, which have mostly been on the back burner in Karth. She has to manage these new members of her coalition, integrate them into the whole. She has to calm Jorah down. She has to bring Strong Belwis to heal without offending him. Belwis is a fun comic relief character who gets an awesome spotlight scene in A Storm of Swords. A lot of Danny's supporting cast get stiff, functional dialogue. Belwis is an exception. His lines are always a delight. Arston Whitebeard is Barristan Selmy, of course. <laughs> it's not one of George's more subtle mysteries. We don't have to dance around this. Already the groundwork is being laid down. He says he is called Arston, and he skips over decades of his life story in between squiring as a boy for Lord Swan and squiring for Belwis now. He knows Jorah and pokes the bear, so to speak, by calling him Lord Mormont, a title he doesn't possess anymore, an easy way to get across his disdain for the informer. Jorah says the old man's face looks familiar, a clue to the audience, oh, we've seen this man before. Hmm. George even reminded us earlier in the book via Renly multiple times that Barristan is missing, you should look for him to show up at some point. Again, everyone is performing, everyone wears a mask. Danny herself doesn't look like Barristan expected. Only Belwas is really genuine. He wears his scars literally all over him. The first-time reader isn't likely to think about whether there might be more to these guys because we're focused on the message they bring. It was Illyrio who sent them. Remember him? Mm-hmm. It looks like the movers and shakers back west have finally taken notice of Danny's new dragons. Belwas and Arston have arrived with ships to take her home. But wait, Emmett, why in the world did Illyrio and Varys send Barristan to Daenerys instead of Young Grift? Wouldn't it have made more sense for these two conspirators to further enshrine Young Grift with another exemplar of Westeros' chivalry and legitimacy to win the optics game against the Lannisters and whoever else is standing athwart their path to the Iron Throne? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we're going to have a little discussion about this because 
at this point in the story, and we don't know this for sure, but we we do know. Actually, we do know this for sure. We do know this from from Connington, from Connington's later memory. Young Griff has John Connington with him now, or John Connington has Young Griff with him for now. Either or. Adding in Sir Barrison so many to Young Griff's entourage would make people in Westeros turn their heads. Just look at everyone, as you were saying, from Renly to Joffrey to Catelyn to Stannis to Tywin, wondering where Sir Barrison is. And do recall what Tywin Lannister said about Barrison's dismissal back in the Game of Thrones Tyrion 9. And dismissing Selmy, what was the sense in that? Yes, the man was old, but the name of Barristan the Bold still has meaning in the realm. He lent honor to any man he served. So this is either just really, really dumb on Varys and Lars, on Varys and Lars. So this is either just really, really dumb on Varys and Illyria's part, or it's another example of George not quite having the young Griff character invented or having that really nailed down, right? Well, not so fast. Let's talk about the endless debate about when Young Griff came about first. We did talk about this in our episodes on the House of the Undying, but we'll bring it up here briefly. Though there may not have been a character named Young Grift that existed in name here, and there may not have been a quote-unquote John Connington by this point as well, I would say that both characters existed at this point in George's imagination. Daenerys saw a mummer's dragon in the House of the Undying and went so far as to define what that meant as you talked about earlier. Meanwhile, we'll meet Red Ronnet Connington by name in Sansa's final chapter as one of the knights pledging fealty to Joffrey after serving Stannis. And early in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion does mention two unnamed hands of the king who died penniless in exile. One of them is Lord Merriweather, the other one is of course John Connington. And here in A Clash of Kings, Daenerys V, Aegon, gets a nice little name drop within the context of Danny and Jorah discussing what she saw in the House of the Undying and what Rhaegar had named his son. So George had the Mummer's Dragon, an exiled hand already in play in A Clash of Kings, though of course he may have retconned the dying in exile to quote-unquote reported de- dead in exile, but actually very much alive, John Connington, and he was talking specifically about Aegon VI in this very chapter. So I think George had young Griff in play here, even if he hadn't come up with the name by this point. Let's turn back to Barristan Selmy now. Was this a massive clusterfuck on Varys and Illyria's part to send Barristan first to Daenerys instead of to young Griff? I don't think so, actually. For one, Varus and Illyrio now knew about the dragons, thanks to old Sleigh Bear's spy reports. And the plan was to bring Danny and her party back to Pentos as Belwas and Arston tell Danny in this chapter. Now, obviously, Danny makes a Slaver's Bay detour, but we should wonder what would have happened if Daenerys actually showed back up to Pentos as Illyrio had planned. This is where we get into some theory territory, some speculation, so to speak. But here's where I think sending Barrison to Danny was a clever ploy. Besides Illyria waiting for Danny and Pentos, I think someone else would have been there as well. Young Griff, aka the reported son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Elia of Dorne. And Young Griff would have had the Golden Company with them. Let's fast forward ahead to Connington's Lost Lord chapter from A Dance of Dragons to find out what Illyria was planning. Which plan, said Tristan Rivers, the fat man's plan, the one that changes every time the moon turns? First, Viserys Targaryen was to join us with 50,000 Dothraki screamers at his back. Then the Beggar King was dead, and it was to be his sister, a pliable young child queen who would be on her way to Pentos with three newly hatched dragons. So what I think was that once Illyria and Varys learned that Daenerys birthed dragons, they decided on the hitched young Griff and Daenerys scheme. What changed over the course of time was where that hitching would occur. I think, and again, speculation on my part, but I think the original plan was for the meeting of the two Targaryens to have taken place in Pentos, and then they ended up fragging that to have the meeting occur at Volantis after Danny went to Slaver's Bay, with them thinking that she would continue conquering her way across Essos on her way back to Westeros. Now, all of that is interesting, and of course a topic for a lot of discussion in Dance with Dragons, but how does it connect with sending Barrison to Daenerys? 
What I think is that Illyrio needed some sort of connecting glue between Aegon and Daenerys, and they thought that Barristan could serve as that connection. Barristan was a story knight and knew the Roberts' Rebellion backstory. If Daenerys had any ambitions that she, rather than Aegon, was the rightful heir to the throne, Barristan could be there to tell Danny that, wait a second there, actually Aegon had the rightful and better claim. He was Rhaegar's son after all. Moreover, if Illyrio envisioned a marriage alliance between Daenerys and Aegon at this point in A Clash of Kings, Barristan could potentially aid in this, reminding Daenerys of the Targaryen custom of marrying close relatives. Also, this is admittedly speculative on my part, but I do hope it provides a plausible and possible reason for why Illyrio sent Barristan onto Danny rather than fold him into young Griff's entourage. I think you've always done a great job at, at smoothing out the kind of snarled bits of the timeline as far as young <laughs> Griff are concerned. Very clearly kind of parody with Tristan Rivers there. So yeah, great job. I think that definitely sets up why Barristan is here. Even though, as you say, obviously a lot of this is still nascent and forming in George's mind. Mm-hmm. From from Danny's perspective, this is like her dream come true. Loyalists come home. Loyalists come to take her home with these ships. That's exactly what she wanted, what she couldn't get from Zero, what she couldn't get from Karth. And she immediately thinks of it in terms of the House of the Undying, prophecies coming true. It's probably a, just a coincidence that there are three ships. But Danny's encounter with prophecy has left her seeing the pattern everywhere, three ships for three heads of the dragon. She orders the ship's names changed to reflect that. They will now be the three original Targaryen dragons, so she may properly ride them home. I think this gesture sums up Danny's story. It's a personal expression of her desire for home, a political statement of Targaryen restoration and renewal, and a self-fulfilling prophecy in which she makes the House of the Undying real. Would Danny have made that decision without the Undying? Are the Undying responsible or her? Do we make the world or are we made by it? Danny is going to have a much more hands-on approach to power in the Storm of Swords, but she will still be as confused by these questions as anyone else. I agree. And earlier, I criticized how George did Danny's character work in relation to her deciding to take ship for Westeros. But let me end our time with Danny and Karth on a not wholly negative note, because you're absolutely right that Danny has fashioned the world that swirls around her from earlier into what she saw in the House of the Undying. Three heads of the dragons, three sibling Targaryens who conquered Westeros, three ships are here. It's all connected. Of course, as you were also saying, on a Watsonian level, it's probably just a coincidence that Illyrio sent three ships, and it's not likely that Rhaegar's statement that the dragon must have three heads relates to these three ships. On that Doyless level, though, George might be having a bit of a gag with Danny here. He knows that the dragon must have three heads. He knows what the dragon must have three heads means, even if Danny and we, the readers, don't. But like all of us, when we see what appears to be a series of dots to connect, Danny sees the world oh so clearly. It's like she's looking up at the night sky and she's looking at these stars like the Greeks did. And she's de- she's deciding that there's constellations that are out there, that they're all connected in some way. So Danny orders the letters painted in huge gold letters, a declaration that her dragons have returned, that the dragons altogether have returned. But it's also a declaration of her certainty of destiny. Unfortunately for Danny, a storm of swords and especially a dance with dragons will put that certainty and destiny to the test as she faces multiple challenges to her firm beliefs that she leaves Karth with here in a clash of kings. I think that's great. I think I, you know we weren't you know obviously super huge fans of the storyline, but I think we set ourselves up really well for taking Danny to the next step in Slaver's Bay, and I'm super excited about that. Mm-hmm. 
So in terms of foreshadowing and groundwork, obviously all this backstory with Egg on the Sixth is going to return with a vengeance in A Dance with Dragons. We've been alluding to that. But yeah, this is a case where your first time through, you don't even realize it's being set up. You think this is just backstory for, for something that a character that's long dead, something that's not going to matter, that's just being mentioned in passing, but it all becomes very important. So, you know, obviously make sure you read things closely because <laughs> you never know what's going to come back. Right. And, and I think like early on... I. Again, I, I'm not sure that George had a lot of the specifics in mind, but I think he had the Mummer's Dragon, had an Aegon the Sixth type character that was going to show up in the storyline that was that was about to come into into the fore. And of course, here in Clash Kings, we get that Aegon the Sixth name drop in this chapter, and then a Storm of Swords introduces us by name to John Connington after he had been one of the unnamed hands from uh, that that Tyrion mentioned in a Clash of Kings. So, yeah, and, and I think that it's important that. Aegon the Six gets name dropped in this Daenerys chapter and then gets another name drop in later Danny chapters in A Dance with Dragons because ultimately these two characters are going to be connected and I think Young Griff's story is going to end specifically at the business end of one of Danny's dragons. Agreed. Speaking of Rhaegar's kids, Danny mentions that, well, if Rhaegar was trying to recreate the original three heads, oh, there was no Visenya, there was no third, and of course that third head will turn out to be. Jon Snow, not uh, not the hmm. kid pretending pretending or purporting to be young uh, Egg on the Sixth, but actually Jon Snow. You know, I had this I had this weird feeling when I was we were going through this chapter when they're interpreting the the three heads of the dragon, and I was wondering, and I know it's I, I know that George has confirmed in a Sospek Martin that the the Aegon that was referred to was Aegon the Sixth, that is Rhaegar's son uh, with Ilya of Dorne. But I also kind of wondered too whether that's also an allusion to Jon Snow's name too sure. of being Aegon Targaryen, that even if it's that's it's symbolically that that he named his one son Aegon and he named his, his other son Aegon because I guess the Targaryens don't really have much in the way of imagination when it comes to names. But um, I, I think it's, it's it's important that the three heads of the dragon is something that I a lot of fans debate about. But I definitely think that that John is is one of those three heads. As for the the, the other one, I think it's it could potentially be a mystery. But I still tend to favor Tyrion, even if he's not necessarily a Targaryen. Even though I do think he's a Targaryen bastard, anyways. It's it's the the irony of the three heads as Rhaegar saw it, and then the three heads as George sees it, and then the three heads as Danny considers, and they they could all be different, and you know those those will be conflicting for uh, for narrative prominence. Oh yeah. So we were talking about that we're, we're transitioning into a storm of swords here with Danny, which we all love. This was one of Danny's strongest arcs, and there are two moments in this chapter which basically set up the first half of her storm of swords arc. The first is that she likes hearing Valyrian spoken at the at the Carthine docks and can understand it. And the second is that she needs an army, which of course means that Astapor can't come soon enough. So of course the Valyrian that she likes hearing spoken is going to play a part in her negotiations with that idiot asshole Astapori guy. And of, course, and of course that she needs an army is going to factor to how she gets the Unsullied and takes them on and how that becomes like a, a point of discussion between her and Jorah in her first chapter in A, in a Storm of Swords. Like I was saying earlier, the port is Danny's gateway back to the rest of the world, and Slaver's Bay is kind of a slap to the face, a shock as she re-encounters that world. And yeah, she's she's solved uh, part of her problem here because she's escaped Karth, and she has ships to go westward, but she still doesn't have an army. And as we'll get into in a Storm of Swords, Dora has his own personal reasons for not wanting to just deliver Danny cleanly into Illyrio's arms. So all that's going to come together in Slaver's Bay. It's going to be so much fun to get into that. So finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, the, we, we could call this a part of Micah's minor character corner, although this is not necessarily a character, it's a ship, because mm-hmm. Danny attempts to gain passage aboard one of the ships at the uh, the docks called the Slow-Eyed Maid, and that ship gets a mention in Davos's second A Dance with Dragons chapter as visiting White Harbor and bringing news of Danny and her dragons to the people of White Harbor. 
kind of hilariously in that chapter, you know, that the captain apparently had told the the people at the inn that uh, that he rejected taking on the Dothraki and taking on the on Daenerys because they were they were too too dangerous. But in reality, as as Danny reveals here, the ship was actually too small, and she didn't. She was the one who actually rejected him, as opposed to him rejecting her. The story just changes in the telling. You know, it's that telephone game across Westeros. And yeah, this is where George starts to play with the information about Danny drip dripping its way over to Westeros. Obviously, as far as Pentos and Varus's information network now know about Danny and her dragons. In the Storm of Swords, Varus is going to start controlling the feed of that information to the Lannister Small Council. But by the time you get to a Feast for Crows, it's pretty widely known in Westeros, at least mm-hmm. at the level of a rumor that Danny has dragons. And then, of course, that's only going to ramp up as she gets closer and closer to Westeros itself. Mm-hmm. So, to our theory and discussion for the episode, we were talking in passing of the little bits of weird things happening in Karth that Zero brings up as proof that the Warlocks might be more of a real deal than usual. And as I said, most of them just kind of stand out as just being like, you know, weird details you can't explain, and that's the point of them. But one that uh, stands out in retrospect is the first one that Zara brings up. It is said that glass candles are burning in the house of Urathan Nightwalker that have not burned in a hundred years. Glass candles themselves come up again in A Feast for Crows in the Old Town plot as being devices like the Palantirs and Lord of the Rings that allow you to look through shadow and cloud and stone and flesh across great distances in time and space and see things that are going on in other, other areas of the world. So uh, that could be potentially tied into that plot, George setting up the glass candles ahead of time, but also the name Urathon Nightwalker is very telling. And uh, there, there's the possibility that this might be connected to a character we meet later in the series. Yes, that that character, of course, is is Quaith, right? She is your. It's Quaith again! Yay! <laughs> Yay, Quaith! Oh God, we we couldn't leave it. We couldn't leave Karth without one final mention of of Quaith here. So obviously, the the character Yorath the Nightwalker, as, as many folks have theorized, is is most likely Euron Greyjoy, and this is really interesting because this George has done a really interesting thing uh, f- for this character known as Euron Greyjoy, who, of course, is Emmett's favorite character and is a character that I've come to more and more appreciate as, we, as we've gotten deeper into doing the series together, as well as also doing all our parts for our, our patron episodes about the Forsaken. So let, let's talk a little bit about Eurothon Nightwalker, and let's talk about the name first. So Eurothon as a name is interesting because we get we don't really hear of like any characters with those that side of Carthine sounding name, right? It's a very interesting name. But we do hear of another people group which has similar sounding names of things like Uragon and Ura Urathon, I think is, is maybe another one as well. We get from A Dance with Dragons and from the World of Ice and Fire. And that is actually Ironborn. That is an Ironborn type name. And then we have Nightwalker as well. Nightwalker, eh, that kind of seems to symbolize something else about, about Euron. Again, listen to our episodes about the Forsaken for more about that. But I think like here, we, we can talk a little bit about another aspect which you brought up, which is the glass candles. So in A Dance with Dragons Daenerys 7, Danny has this dream where she is basically raped by someone who has a, a, a an ice-cold cock, as, as, as she describes in, in that chapter. That is most likely Euron Greyjoy utilizing the glass candle in, in, in the way that he, he does, which is just complete fuckery. Um, the other aspect, too, when we talk about Euron the Nightwalker, is he is a character is interesting because Euron is going to show up in A Feast for Crows talking about that he has warlocks in his possession. He has the wine of the warlocks. He has all of these Carthian things in his, in his hands. And he also has a dragon horn, which can bind dragons. As we find out from the World of Ice and Fire app, which Random House and George R. Martin released in 2014, 
we do know that George confirmed, semi-confirmed, I guess, because it's not in the text, but semi-confirmed that that came from the Warlocks. We know from A Dance with Dragons that the Warlocks have been dispatched for Daenerys Targaryen, but they never seem to materialize in her arc somewhere trying to kill her. And what likely ended up happening is that Eurotha Nightwalker, a.k.a. Euron, showed up, took the Warlocks prisoner, took their wine, and of course took the dragon horn as well. And then he journeyed across Essos, across the seas, somehow ended up in the Summer Islands because we do hear about a Corsair King which has showed up in Astapor attempting to buy Unsullied, left Astapor, didn't buy any Unsullied, headed to the Summer Islands, sacked, I can't remember what the, the town is called, a Planky Town, I want to say, from in the Summer Islands. I think and then Tall shows Tree's up, Town, if that Tall is Tree's him. Tall Tree's we don't yep. know for sure yep. if it's him, but yeah, that's what the Corsair King did. Yep. Right, and I think that speaks to something which I think is really interesting, which George does with Euron Greyjoy, is that he is suddenly building up this major antagonist, this major villain for A Song of Ice and Fire in the form of Euron Greyjoy, very subtly in the first three books in A Song of Ice and Fire, but especially A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. And then he shows up in full force in A Feast for, in a Feast for Crows. So I guess my question for you, Emmett, as getting away from the who is Euron the Nightwalker, because it's, it's pretty clear... That it's Euron Greyjoy. I mean, still not confirmed, but it's it's pretty clear it's your it's Euron Greyjoy. My question for you is, why didn't Euron immediately go for Daenerys Targaryen while she was in Karth, while she while she was right there with him? Why did he end up going back to the Iron Islands before deciding that he was going to send Victarion back out east to try and seize seize Daenerys and her dragons? Well, just to talk a little bit more about the evidence for it, because I think for me the yeah. the big detail is that uh, we hear about another Urathon in Ironborn history. Uh, Urathon, good brother the fourth, also known as Urathon, bad brother. Uh, when uh, the King Uragon the third, Grey Iron died, a king's moot was called by the family, while one of the uh, the the members of the family, uh, Torgon, was out doing raiding, and the, the, the there were other sons in the family that were hoping they were able to take advantage of that, but the king's moot ended up honoring someone, a, a different family entirely. They chose Urathon, good brother, and he wiped out the other sons of the previous king after the king's moot, and so he became known as Urathon, bad brother. And then later, Torgon came along and said that technically the king's moot shouldn't count because he wasn't there to make his case, so they overthrew it and was able to overthrow uh, Urathon, and Torgon became the next king. And this becomes mm-hmm. directly relevant to the plot when a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons, when Euron wins, wins at the king's moot, and Roderick the Raider directly compares him to uh, Urathon, good brother, saying their names sound queerly alike and history is a wheel and all that stuff. And that he strongly hints Asha should repeat the Torgon latecomer precedent with Theon and say that the king's moot that crowned Euron was invalid because Theon as Balon's son was not there and that they should have to do it again and that's how they can use the politics and culture of the of the Iron Islands to unseat Euron maybe at least in his absence anyway so that parallel I think is so strong that that definitely indicates I think in in George's mind that he's setting this up as as Euron and Nightwalker yeah the fact that he's connected to glass candles that he can show up in your dreams is is a pretty clear connection there I don't think George ever intended Euron to enter the story this early, um, which makes me curious as to why this little mention is in there at all. I think it'd be easy if Euron is having a big villain speech later in the series to list this among his resume that I was Urathon Nightwalker and Karth along with another bunch of names he can list off for himself. I don't think there really is an in-universe reason. I don't, I don't you mm-hmm. know, Zero doesn't even say that Urathon is there. It just says it's happening in his house. But I think it's it's it sets up the glass candle strongly. I don't, you know. I don't, <laughs> sorry to disappoint, but I don't think there really is a motivation for him not to do it. I just think it's George doesn't have time for him to at this point. Hmm. I, I think it's interesting. And I, and I think like it, George does a really great job of, of building up this character very subtly. And then, of course, has him explode onto page in, in, in A Feast for Crows. I think that's really, uh, that's a really good storytelling technique to have. 
your villain just emerge very, very slowly in the narrative from from a Clash of Kings, from as mentioned in, in Theon's first and second chapters in a Clash of Kings, to Yoroth the Nightwalker and Daenerys's fifth chapter in a Clash of Kings, the mention of him here, to having the Corsair King show up at try by Unsullied, to have him show up at, at Taltree's town, as everyone has, has corrected me about. Um, to have him then show up at, have him hear about him off page in A Storm of Swords as, as Euron shows back up in, in Catelyn's chapters in A Storm of Swords as they're making their way up to, to the twins for the Red Wedding. And then have him actually explode onto page in A Feast for Crows and and especially in The Winds of Winter. I think that's really, really good storytelling to kind of build up this villain. It's it's a slow burn rise of a villain. And I think that works really well, really well in the context of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think this is one of the places that George did a really good job in expanding the stories out from simply a trilogy to a four book trilogy to six books to, to seven books. It really helps to expand these characters and expand your villains. So they become both believable and much more scary too, as they progress in the narrative. I totally agree. So I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of a clash of Kings Daenerys five. And of course going to wrap us up completely for Daenerys's story in a clash of Kings. One more point of view character down folks. We are we are driving towards the end as always thank you so much for listening and if you have the chance please rate and review us on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud podbean spotify anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts you can check out our patreon at patreon.com slash notacast asoiaf you can follow us on twitter at notacast asoiaf or shoot us an email at notacast asoiaf at gmail.com you can find me at poor quentin on twitter or at poorquentin.com and you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, Brendan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Narabal the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nacy the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjagut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bulan de Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Later Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Sydney of House Quo, Protect Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, fierce protector of cripples, bastards, and broken things. And our newest High Lady, who asked this week's question, Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye. So thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much, and welcome to Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye. It's a really cool tie. I really, really love it a lot. So join us next week for A Clash of Kings, Arya 10, in which Arya interns for Lord Roose Bolton, who is good bad very bad before finally escaping heron hall and heading off into the wilderness of the riverlands she doesn't even get a letter of recommendation first poor aria just a waste of time just a waste of time but yes definitely this is aria 9 might have been your favorite aria chapter but i think aria 10 is definitely my favorite aria chapter in all right King, so all right i look forward to it then oh i can't wait to do that with you sir 
So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of you who have watched us on our live streams. Thank you again to all of our patrons, and we'll see you next week for a Clash of Kings Aria 10. <laughs>